Alrighty, it's been a while. Mark chapter 2. We're coming off of the, the healing, of the cleansing of the leper and the healing of the paralytic and uh, how that has sort of made uh, ministry a little difficult for Jesus because uh, word has gotten out, popularity has grown, people are kind of flooding him and uh, that's where we are, so to speak, this morning as we head back into uh, Mark chapter 2, picking up in verse 13. Hear the word of our God. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, be with us as we deal with, in some ways, is a very simple, easy to kind of understand passage, but in other ways is a very difficult passage for our hearts to grasp. Um, uh, There is resistance in us on a number of levels uh, as we see and understand what's really kind of going on in this text. And so we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit uh, to help us to be humble and receptive, uh, to not think about it in terms of us, them, uh, but us. What do we need to hear this morning? so that we can be proper followers of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So I have a question for you. Who likes to go to the doctor? I see no hands in the... Oh, one, Levi likes... You like to go to the doctor? You, you like to be poked and prodded and asked all of these really personal questions? Oh, it's the lollipop. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. But most of us, most of us don't like to go to the doctor. We find going to the doctor rather intimidating. It can be rather embarrassing. You know, you've got to fill out that questionnaire, and, uh, and then, you know, you have to verbalize your symptoms to the doctor, and sometimes they're, they're not the most pleasant symptoms in the universe, and uh, you end up saying things you don't want to say. It's sort of like the Inquisition. Uh, as they grill you. I have a long resistance, a lo- I'm sorry, a long track record of resistance to going to the doctor. Um, sometimes I need to bas- basically be on my deathbed before I go to the doctor. Uh, I remember uh, one time, it was right before I came here, uh, I didn't want to spend the money to go to the doctor. For me, it was about money, okay, because we had the gigantic deductible that a lot of you experience. And uh, I, w- I hadn't been paid yet. 
but finally I broke down because my bronchitis was not getting any better. Uh, I have a long record of resisting going to the doctor for a series of boils that erupt upon my body, and I've gotten really good at taking care of those things and getting rid of them. Uh, but again, there's that, I don't want to go to the doctor. And sometimes maybe it's about he might find something worse about me. We all have different reasons why we don't want to go to the doctor. It can be money. It can be fear. What's really going on with my body? Will he find out that there's something uh, that I don't want to hear, like the big C word or something like that? Um, Or it's just I don't have the time. I don't want to make the time to go to the doctor. Uh, If I just wait a little longer, I might get better. Jesus is going to be revealed to us in the midst of this text as a doctor. And hopefully we will not find the same excuses uh, to avoid going to this doctor. So let's kind of unpack this text this morning. And I, I, wanna, I have a different question than the one that you've got in your notes, if you're one of those people who follows along with the notes. Um, and this, this question is, does Jesus call sinful or unrighteous people to be his disciples? Uh, we've seen earlier in chapter 1 uh, that he met these four fishermen and, you know, by the name of uh, Simon, Andrew, John, and James. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And you know, they may have been a little rough around the edges, but they were respectable human beings with respectable jobs. Fishermen. Important jobs, uh, particularly in that uh, culture. Uh, we see Jesus healing a leper. Okay? He, he makes him... Uh, not just disease-free, but also clean. We see Jesus healing this paralytic, but also not just healing him, but saying, you are forgiven of your sins. But what's interesting about those two is that Jesus doesn't say, following that up, follow me. Jesus says to the one, go tell the priest. He says to the other, take up your mat and go home. He does not say, follow me, even though they could be seen as unrighteous and sinners. It's in this context that I want us to begin to understand this passage. And so we have the crowd which keeps coming to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? But it says he was teaching them. He, in other words, is fulfilling the call that he revealed in chapter 1, verse 38, after his time of prayer when the disciples found him in the wilderness. You know, what are you doing here, Jesus? Everyone's looking for you, and he's, I'm here to preach. Secondarily, he's there to heal. Primarily, to preach. To teach people about his kingdom. uh, This righteous kingdom of peace and justice. Setting the stage. The next step of this story is that he is walking along and he sees a guy by the name of Levi, who's the son of Altheus, which is not all that important to us at this particular point in time. Uh, although where he finds him is significant because he finds Levi sitting at a tax booth, which means he was a tax collector. Capernaum was on the trade route between Syria and Egypt, and so, uh, you know, Herod wanted his piece of the financial pie, and so to travel through Herod's territory, uh, Herod would have people like Levi at the tax booths collecting taxes. But it's not just the trade routes, it's also the reality of fish. There's commerce, and wherever there's commerce, the government wants its slice of the pie. And so that 
is what Levi does. He collects money for Herod, who sends it to Rome. The people of that day and in that place considered tax collectors to be traitors because they worked for Herod and Rome, the enemy to all good Jews. Herod, the pretender and slaughterer of God's people at times. The tax collector was considered to be unclean. He was considered to be the worst kind of sinner in the community. So much so that in the Mishnah we find these interesting things. We find that the poor were not to receive alms from tax collectors. You're a beggar on the street and you recognize the local tax collector is coming. You're supposed to put your hand over your, your bowl or whatever it is that you're collecting your alms in so that they can't give it to you because their money's unclean. Don't take it. If the tax collector comes to you, you are permitted to lie about your possessions to protect your property from the exorbitant fees of the tax collector. They let you lie to this person. If they entered into your house, your whole house would then be considered unclean and then would have to undergo the ritual purification. In fact, if you were a tax collector, you were excommunicated from the synagogue. So when I say that they are part of the um, most, the worst kinds of sinners in the community, and now you get a, an understanding of what it was like, if you take that job, that's what you're going to face. The only other friends are likely going to be other tax collectors and horrible sinners. What's really going on? Why would someone choose to be a tax collector? And I would say that they choose to be a tax collector out of greed, the love of money. Now, Scripture takes the love of money very seriously. Uh, We we find warnings against greed in places like Proverbs 1, Proverbs 15, and Proverbs 28. We see the prophets in places like Jeremiah 6 and 8, as well as Ezekiel 16, speaking out against greed and the the way in which it operates, not just within one human heart, but within cultures. Okay, Because sin doesn't stay limited to the human heart. It begins to form systems as well. We see that in the, the, the catalogs of really bad sins, greed makes its way. We find it in 1 Corinthians 5. We find it in 1 Corinthians 6. We see it in Colossians 3 where it is called idolatry because it's the worship of money. It's thinking that man lives by money alone and not by every every word that comes from the mouth of God. We see in 1 Timothy 6 that this love of money is the root of all kinds of of evil. We see that this greed is responsible for slavery and economic oppression. 
We see that greed is part of the human trafficking and the trafficking of narcotics and other, other illegal goods. We see that greed is the motivation for theft. Greed is the motivation for tax evasion. And the list could go on and on. And what's fascinating to me, as I think about uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, when Paul's talking about the love of money, it's the only sin that I see connected with this is the reason some people have wandered from the faith. The love of money. And so there's a sense in which um, this condemnation that people like Levi experienced has roots in the Scripture, although that really wasn't why most of the people were against the tax collectors. It was really because of their own greed. <laughs> their own wanting to hang on to their stuff. Okay? Greed is um, in the Parthenon of American sins. I'll tell you right now. We tend to focus on sexual immorality, and that's there too. But greed is offensive to God. And it is a great sin, and it is a sin that is prominent in American culture. Now, if Jesus encounters that guy, that excommunicated guy, that guy who, who, who loves money, who has chosen his money over his people, okay? And so what does Jesus do? He says, follow me. He doesn't say, I'll make you a a, a taxer of men. (laughs) He already is that. Okay? So there's no sort of uh, parallel statement like there is with the fisherman. I'll make you a fisherman. But he says, follow me. He does not condemn Levi, but instead he invites Levi to become his disciple and to experience the benefits of his holy, righteous, perfect, peaceful kingdom. Now, it's not like he goofed. Like, like somehow we just saw a guy in the street. He's at the booth. Jesus knows who he is. And he says to that big sinner, follow me. He is not simply an uneducated, ordinary, rough-around-the-edges kind of fisherman. He is an immoral outcast. He is deplorable in the eyes of his countrymen. Yet we see that like the four fishermen, he rose and he followed. That this man had because of the work of the Holy Spirit, realized that the money that he had accumulated was not enough. He needed something more. And here comes Jesus, and he goes. And the first thing he does is he throws a party. He throws a feast. And so Jesus and his new friends are going to meet all of his old friends. And so we have other tax collectors and sinners feasting with Jesus. Now, think about this for a moment. 
Jesus is the only perfect person. There is no one, no one, no one who cares more about the law of God than Jesus. And who does he dine with? Tax collectors and sinners. They weren't put off by him. He wasn't creating barriers with them. But he's supping with them uh, that they might come to him and experience a new way of life. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But these tax collectors and these sinners felt comfortable in the presence of the most righteous man, the only righteous man who ever lived. These sinners, this word, uh, it's an adjective in this particular instance, and it can refer to those who are notorious for a particular sin. And so uh, we don't know exactly what is going on. It could be these were prostitutes. Because if you're a tax collector... That's probably the only other people you can hang out with. Would be the prostitutes. Have a real party, so to speak. But this word can also be used for common people who did not follow the oral tradition of the Pharisees who were about to show up on the scene. Okay, so we're not sure what, what we're talking about because Mark is brief on details, as Mark always is. Okay? But these are people who are on the outside. They are the outcasts. They are rejected by the religious people of the day. But they're not being rejected by Jesus. And in fact, it says that many of them followed Him. Were His disciples in some way, shape, or, or form. Often today you will hear as you interact with people, they feel that their sin The fact that they're sinful means that they have they're not welcome, not just in the church. Some people will say, you know, something like, "Well, if I go into a church, there's going to be a bolt of lightning." You know, people use the fact of their sinfulness as an excuse not to come. But we don't. We see that Scripture wipes away that excuse because Jesus is here dining with the deplorables of his day. He stands ready to meet them should they come. This is a reflection of the fact of what we see, Paul's summary of this trustworthy statement in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, uh, deserving of all acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That Jesus' ministry during his, er- his earthly ministry was not a ministry of condemnation, but rather his was a ministry of reconciliation. He had come to rescue people, to redeem people, to bring them back to God from their waywardness. We see this reflected. Uh, this past week I was reading about the Synod of Dort. And we think that's all about predestination. And one of the things it keeps reminding us is that God chooses out of a mass of sinners. He chooses sinful people to come into His presence because there are no other kinds. Jesus calls sinners into His righteous kingdom. 
That's how I kind of answer that first question. Okay? Jesus does call sinful or unrighteous people to be his disciples. Second question that I come up with, and this is more verses 16 through 18. How does, uh, sorry, rather, how do unrighteous people fit into a righteous kingdom? I mean, that's got to be an obvious question. If, as we see in, in, uh, in Romans 14, that this kingdom is a righteous kingdom, how in the world is it that Jesus can call unrighteous people to partake of it? And the scribes of the Pharisees had the same question, essentially. Okay, The scribes were the experts in the law, and these particular scribes belonged to the party of the Pharisees, which meant they were the conservative exegetes of the law, interpreters of the law. And they are expressing concern about Jesus' fellowship with sinners. We're not sure if it's a question of, uh, doesn't Jesus know what danger he's in? Uh, how people will think about this, or if it more is sort of a, Look at that. What kind of rabbi do you have? This time, we saw them earlier in, um, when Jesus forgave the paralytic, uh, but we see them again. And this time, instead of just thinking these thoughts to themselves, their unbelief is revealed by expressing their, these questions, but not to Jesus directly, but to Jesus' disciples, and so the implication does seem to be they're trying to discredit Jesus in the eyes of his disciples, so they follow him no more. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And we have to understand that the Pharisees were essentially the moral majority of that day. Uh, they grew out of uh, the Hasidic movement, that's what we, that's what we call it today, but the Hasidim, the, the, the holiness movement is what they were connected to. Uh, initially, with regard to the corruption from the Greeks, but now we see that they, they still existed here in the times of Jesus, with, in, in, in the, trying to avoid the corruption of the Roman culture. Okay? And what they did is they separated themselves from sinners. They withdrew from sinners. They didn't have, want to have contact with sinners because you might catch what the sinners have. And their concern for the law of God and their hatred of sin was such that they would develop these hedges to protect themselves from actually breaking the law, but they treated those hedges as if it was really law. Such that if you broke the tradition of the elders, they thought you were sinning. And you're on the outs. No grace for you. Have fun out there. They had a profound misunderstanding of grace. They think that God's favor could be earned could be deserved by good, favor, by good behavior. It's a, it's a view that's similar today we find that in Roman Catholicism, we find that in Mormonism, uh, and other sort of works-oriented faiths, which aren't faiths at all. And the problem is that those tax collectors, those sinners, they didn't deserve the favor of God. But we Pharisees do. See? 
their main opponent were the Herodians. And as you might think, that means that they uh, aligned themselves with Herod, and they were the enculturated, they were the compromisers. They're the ones who took on Roman values. And so you have essentially a culture war in first century Judea. And you have uh, most of the people not really involved in the culture war, but you have the Herodians and the Pharisees trading barbs with each other. And we're going to see in a couple of weeks what fascinating thing happens to them. There's your little clickbait. <laughs> we're upcoming, okay? Jesus responds to them. Even though they did not ask of him, they asked of the disciples. The rabbi responds. Those who are well have no need of of a physician. But those who are sick, implied, do. So in a sense he's saying to these guys, why are you shocked? And there's a sense in which, haven't you read the scriptures? That there is one who is coming, that, that the, 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 servant, the suffering servant in Isaiah is coming to reclaim sinners? Don't you get this? To them, it's almost like, you know, guys, this is supposed to be fundamental. But you've lost sight of it. Of course, the sick are coming to the physician so that they may be healed. Those are the people who go to the doctor. Because remember, in that day and age, there, was no, there were no benefits like annual wellness visit. Okay? Jesus continues, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, in the parallel passage in Luke, it adds to repentance, but Mark left that out. His point is slightly different than Luke's point. He's just trying to, reminding us, Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous. Jesus is not gathering the people who have been faithful, but Jesus is calling people who recognize they've been unfaithful. That Jesus is on a rescue mission and that there are people who might think they're righteous, but as Paul taught in Romans 3, there is none who is righteous, no, not one, save the Son of God. And so there are those who aren't coming to Jesus the physician, but they should because they're sick unto death. They have a terminal disease called sin. Jesus heals sinners through his union with them. In other words, as we've talked about from Romans 6, uh, that his life becomes their life, which means his obedience becomes their obedience. His death as a punishment for sin becomes their punishment for sin. 
by his stripes they are healed, as it says in Isaiah 53. And his resurrection from the dead becomes their resurrection from the dead. It's almost as if he's not only a doctor, but he offers up himself and transplants. You have organs that are failing here, have mine. You have death, I have life. Here is my life that you may live. And so we understand the the two main benefits from this union with Jesus Christ. And the first one is what we call justification. Big word, most of you know it, but there might be a few who don't. Okay, And in justification, what happens is that Jesus imputes his righteousness to us so that we become what's called positionally righteous. In other words, it's as if he takes money from his account and sticks it in our account. That's the idea of imputation. Okay? We don't have any righteousness, but he gives us his so that God can sees us and declares us as righteous. Not on account of how good I am, but on how good Jesus was. I'm positionally righteous before God. Okay? We see a picture of this in that that section from uh, Zechariah 3 that was read this morning. Joshua, the high priest, had dirty robes, and so his his robes were removed and what were placed on him were clean robes and so our righteous our sorry our unrighteous deeds our wickedness our guilt and condemnation are removed by Jesus and he places upon us his perfect righteousness we become clothed in Christ as Paul says in Romans 14 at the end so that now We're clean and pure. As a result of this, we're always accepted. We're always considered to be righteous from God's perspective. This righteousness does not increase or decrease because it is Christ's perfect righteousness, which knows neither increase nor decrease. But there's a second grace that comes with this, sanctification. Sanctification is different from justification in a number of ways. Instead of it being imputed righteousness, what it is is imparted or infused righteousness. In other words, his righteousness is being infused into us so that we're not simply positionally righteous, but we become increasingly personally righteous. Dying more and more to sin and living more and more to godliness is another way of putting it. If you look at the larger catechism question and answer 77, you'll see particularly how it uses that word infusion with regard to the righteousness in sanctification. It's like we're getting a transfusion of his righteousness so that we become righteous in our own actions, in our own desires. In increasing fashion. Oh, we experience the ups and the downs through this process of sanctification, which is not completed until death, as we see in lar- larger catechism question number 78 
there's still this remnant of sin that produces all kinds of temptations within us. But we have to recognize what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He's, he's laid out all of those sins that the people who commit them should not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet he says, such were some of you, Corinthians, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so these tax collectors and sinners who come to Jesus in faith have been washed or cleansed. They've been set apart or sanctified. They've been justified or declared to be righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're different people. Though they might continue to struggle. About that struggle for a sec. Does anyone know your struggle? Do you suffer alone? Are you sort of like the person who goes to the doctor and doesn't say what's really wrong? Ooh, I don't want to check that box. That might result in a colonoscopy. (laughs) Yeah. Or any other such uh, unpleasant uh, procedure that we might want to avoid. Do we hide our sin, not just from God, but also each other? Do we pretend that we're not as bad as we really are? Are we a fellowship of pretenders? Or are there people that you're sharing your struggles with? Your struggles with sin, which sometimes can be embarrassing. Right? I mean, do you want everyone knowing what you, what you thought about yesterday? Probably not. But there should be someone who knows. Someone you're talking to. So that sin does not gain the upper hand. A little more about that in a moment. But we see that Jesus restores sinners like a doctor heals the sick. As I look at the clock, I'm reminded, I'm reminded of the fact that I have not preached really in five weeks. I have a lot of words to say. Sorry. Third question, what does this mean for those who follow Jesus? Which is the next logical question in all of this. I want us to remember, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about how Jesus came and reconciled us to God, but not just that, he also gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And we see glimpses of that in the life of of Levi. Levi has been invited into discipleship with Jesus. He's been reconciled with God through Jesus, and now he's already beginning that ministry of reconciliation by inviting all these sinners to a party with Jesus. He's displaying what it means to follow Jesus. He's inviting others to come and join with Jesus. 
we have to recognize, we need to remember, sometimes we forget uh, that today's saints used to be sinners. Every single one. Okay? Maybe some were bigger sinners than others, at least as far as people can see or read in the headlines, but sinners all. We need to remember just as much that today's sinner may be tomorrow's saint. I saw online someone talking about reprobates. And I reminded them, you don't know who a reprobate is. That's an eternal decree of God. The identity of those people will not be revealed until their death. And so every sinner that you meet that, you, that breathes next to you is possibly one of the elect and therefore is someone that should be evangelized because they might be a saint in the future. And the Synod of Dort reminds us that this is one of the reasons why God fulfills his decree of election not just through the death of Jesus Christ but the sending of people out with the ministry of reconciliation. You guys. And me. Something else I think that really kind of screams from this text. Maybe it's just me. But I'm reminded that while we are to be clear about sin. Our main emphasis is intended to be the good news that Jesus forgives and transforms. This was something the Pharisees had forgotten. They saw themselves as trying to provide that that little community, that holy little huddle, and those bad people don't belong in here, as opposed to We exist so that they can join us, be a part of us. And so as I think about the culture war, remember, that's not just a first century thing. We've got a culture war going on right now. And I'm not, I want to be clear, because someone really misunderstood me online this week when I talked a little bit about this. So I'm trying to learn from that. I'm not saying ignore the culture war. If you hear me saying that, you haven't heard me. Okay? What I am saying is, there are some warnings we need to heed if we're going to partake in the culture war in any way, shape, or form. And one of those warnings is that culture wars quickly derail the ministry of reconciliation. Because now it's us, them, whichever us you are, and whichever them they are, okay, you're now at odds, and you're not trying to win them to your side, you're trying to win the culture war. You're trying to get your way. And so that becomes dangerous, that you lose sight of what your real ultimate goal is, is the ministry of reconciliation, the expansion of the kingdom not the formation of the holy huddle. Okay. Second warning that kind of goes with this is that culture wars tend to create unpardonable sins and outcasts. Both sides. 
whether you're the conservative culture warrior or you're the social justice warrior, you tend to create categories of sin that are unpardonable. For the social justice warrior, as an example, once a racist, always a racist. Ain't no help for them. Be done with them. Get rid of them. Over here, well, we got a lot of them. (laughs) We can do that too. Thinking that there are certain people God can't reach. We turn them into outcasts, much like the Pharisees and Jewish society had made the tax collectors outcasts. And the danger of this is that we see the speck in their eye and ignore the log in ours. It's easy to see the tax collector's greed. It's really hard to see ours. Right? Years ago, Francis Schaeffer said this. The mistake that the Orthodox people have made is to say that homophile tendencies are sin in themselves, even if there is no homosexual practice. Therefore, the homophile tends to be pushed out of human life, and especially Orthodox church life, even if he does not practice homosexuality. This, Schaefer says, he believes is both cruel and wrong. Now, he's got some idiosyncratic language that's in there. Okay? He uses words or phrases that maybe that's because he was in Europe for so long um, that we don't tend to use. Uh, but what the bottom line for me is, is I'm, when I, as I see that he's saying, calling this a sin, transgression. Uh, that's how I'm interpreting it. Not as lack of conformity to the law of God. We know that it is. But whether they've transgressed the law by being tempted. And when you make, um, see, many times as I've gone it run through my head, it's still hard to express because I know I'm walking in a minefield. It gets back to the difference between what a Christian should or could experience. It's okay to say a Christian should not experience temptation for a particular sin. Meaning that that is a lack of conformity to the law of God. And you're recognizing that that is something that the person needs to put to death or mortify. Okay? not follow up on, entertain, or whatever else. But we easily slide over from the should to the could and begin to say that if you, therefore, experience that temptation, whatever it might be, you cannot be a Christian. Understand the difference. As opposed to recognizing that the, sin, the seed of every sin is in every human heart. So the warning is about making certain sins, special sins, 
such that Christians can't struggle with them, and if they do, they're being forced out of the, out of the community of faith as opposed to being um, loved by the community of faith so that they are able to be sanctified. So that they have help in their struggle against sin. So please don't confuse what Christians shouldn't do with what Christians can't do and condemn others. For instance, the possibly apocryphal tale, I'm not sure, um, but I've heard it before, of when D.L. Moody visited England on a preaching tour. And he stopped by Charles Spurgeon's house. And Charles Spurgeon uh, answered the door with a cigar. And D.L. Moody went, Where I come from, that's a sin. And Spurgeon, possibly puffing his cigar and blowing his smoke at him, I don't know. That's a nice touch, isn't it? (laughs) Where I come from, pointing to his big belly, oh, that's a sin. There you have it. That's what we do the exact opposite of what we should. We need to help each other in our struggle with sin. We need to be patient with each other, especially when their sin isn't your sin. But we have to recognize that we're all in sickbay together. Just because you have a bad knee as opposed to uh, someone with a hacking cough doesn't mean that uh, you know, you're, all, you're health, more healthy than the other person. We're all in need of the Savior. Paul reminds us of that in Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3.13. Be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We're reminded of things like this in James 3, for we all stumble in many ways. We do. The sins of others, for instance, uh, can also give us a window into our own sin problems. This is especially true for parents. When your kids drive you crazy because of their sin, it doesn't mean they're worse sinners than you just means you think you've gotten over that sin. But the fact that you're so irritated might mean that you really haven't. Or they're pointing out another of your sins in a way. Recognize that God uses your children to continue to reshape you, to put off sin and put on righteousness. What does this look like? I'm already way too late, but this looks like driving a car. Okay? If I spend all, I mean, I, I need to look where I'm going, right? But what happens if I only look where I'm going? I might have problems on my side or my back, and I might end up hitting something because I'm not paying attention, because I might think that I'm free to go into this here lane when I'm not. Or I might not see the person who's coming up behind me and I just think, well, you know, I don't care how fast I drive. Oh, I'm just going to put on my brake right now. 
and create a problem for the guy behind me. We need to look ahead, but we also look in our rear view mirror and our side mirrors. Okay. Think of it this way. The imputed righteousness of Christ is what we need to spend most of our time looking at. It's the windshield. You need to spend most of your time contemplating the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay? But if you only look at that, there's a danger. For instance, there's the danger of antinomianism. You begin to think that your, be your behavior does not matter, and so you don't repent of any sin because you don't see of any sin because you're so focused on Jesus. You have to look in your rearview mirror. You need to be honest about your personal righteousness or lack thereof so that you're repenting of your sin and turning away from it. But if you only look in your rearview mirror, guess what? You, you're going to hit something in front of you. <laughs> you're going to be overwhelmed by your guilt and despair because you are a sinner uh, that you lose sight of Jesus. Okay? So, quick looks up there. You don't stare at it. But periodically, like driving, you look. Okay, it's clear. Okay, it's clear. But you don't want to only look at in the rearview mirror, you want to look in the side mirror, you do need to see how, how your brothers and sisters are living. And now here's the danger. Okay, on this side, it's the people that are doing worse than you from your perspective. And over here is the people that are doing better than you, at least from your perspective. If you only look at one, you're going to be a mess. If I, only, if I look at the people who are doing worse than me, I'm going to start being prideful. If I, start, if I only look at the people who are doing worse than me, I'm sorry, better than me, I'm going to start to despair. I just can't ever get my act together, man. We need to look at both so that we can understand how we're doing with respect to our community and how our community is doing with respect to us so we can help them and be helped by them. But we always have to keep going back Okay, those are quick glances, just like the one in the rearview mirror. The main focus is going to be Christ and his righteousness for us. That's the only way for you to drive to heaven, shall we say. You're not going to get to heaven if you're looking in the rearview mirror all the time. Or if you're gazing in the side mirrors. You're going to go off in a ditch. Okay? I hope that helps. Following Jesus means joining other sinners in his kingdom. Yes, I changed that for those of you who follow along. Following Jesus means joining other sinners in his kingdom. You're not all righteous yet. You're positionally righteous, but you're not yet completely personally righteous. And the sooner you understand that, the better off it is for everybody. But if we sum all of this up, we recognize that Jesus calls sinners into his kingdom so he can heal them because he's the great physician. And so while you and I, we, we tend not to like going to the doctor, illness and disease prompt us to go. We tell them our symptoms so that they can figure out what's wrong with us and how to treat it. Jesus is the great physician. 
Sinners can turn to Him in order to have their sin healed. Jesus doesn't turn away from sinners going, oh boy, I don't want to deal with that disease. But He comes and He heals the ones who come to Him in faith. Jesus gives them His own perfect righteousness in justification. They are now fully accepted on the basis of His obedience. But He also imparts His righteousness to them so that they become personally righteous or increasingly healthy, addressing our practice of sinning. Following Jesus means being His disciple and coming under His care. One image of the church is as a hospital where we were all under his treatment, but we're also in therapy with one another. Do you want yourself and others to get well, or do you want them to stay away from you so you don't catch what they've got? Because that is what this text puts its finger on. The greatness of Jesus as a healer of sinners, a physician of souls, but also our tendency to think others are worse off than us and there's no hope for them. And if you say that, you've forgotten who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, it's a disturbing, hard word in many ways. There's stuff in there I didn't want to say. There's stuff that if I'm all honest, I don't want to hear. Because I'm like every other sinner. I think the Pharisees are worse than me. Instead of realizing I'm a lot like them sometimes. We thank you that there is a greater Savior one who is greater than all our sin, who is an expert, a specialist in every kind of sinning in terms of its healing. And we ask that the great physician would be at work amongst us, healing us of our pride and self-righteousness, our greed, our sexual immorality, our whatever it is, that we would bring those struggles into community instead of hiding them where they can grow. But being honest about them so they can die. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.